When the United States entered World War II, the San Francisco Bay Area was dominated by naval stations and shipyards, while thousands of sailors moved into the surrounding cities and towns. The vast grounds of San Francisco's Presidio military base also served as home to soldiers, other personnel, and equipment. The name Presidio has its origins in the Roman word Presidium, or a fortified camp. The strong military presence and constant flow of servicemen had a lasting influence on the Bay Area long after the war ended in 1945. Beat poets infiltrated the city throughout the 1950s, only to be replaced by the so-called hippies of the 1960s. The streets were often filled with angry and defiant demonstrators exchanging insults, threats, and blows with embattled police officers. The Castro district also became the focal point for the growing gay rights movement. Conscientious objectors, deserters, and draft dodgers sought refuge among the masses, while runaways, young peace lovers, dropouts, drifters, and fun seekers invaded the Haight-Ashbury section of the city. By the end of the decade, San Francisco was the stage for anti-war protests and the counterculture movement. North of the chaos, the mansions and tree-lined streets of Presidio Heights provided a sense of security for its wealthy residents. Located at the tip of the San Francisco Peninsula, in the shadow of the expansive military base, the upscale neighborhood seemed like an unlikely setting for the execution of a cab driver. Believing that this suspect was possibly the one involved in the shooting, we conducted a search, did not find the suspect. This is the Zodiac speaking. I am the murderer of the taxi driver. To prove this, here is a blood-stained piece of his shirt. This man is a psychopath, very seriously mentally deranged. School children make nice targets. I wish somebody would catch this guy. I don't care who it is, just somebody catch him. Zodiac said he shall never be caught. This is Zodiac A to Z. The evening of October 11, 1969, had been quiet and peaceful in the Presidio Heights neighborhood of San Francisco until a yellow taxi cab stopped in front of the steps to the tall corner house at 3898 Washington Street. Activity inside the vehicle attracted the attention of a 14-year-old girl on the second floor of the house directly across the street. She peered through the cold glass of the window at a puzzling and disturbing sight. The girl alerted her two brothers that something strange appeared to be happening outside, and the three teenagers nervously studied the unfolding scene. According to a police report, the witnesses stated that they saw a man in the front seat of the yellow cab, mid to passenger side, with the limp body of another man slumped partially over his lap on the driver's side, with his feet near the door. The man seemed to be searching the pockets of the second man, and he appeared to be wiping 
on the interior of the cab, leaning over the victim to the driver's compartment. One of the excited teens used a telephone to call police. A dispatcher attempted to obtain a description of the suspect, who exited the cab by the passenger side front door, also wiping with a white rag, possibly a handkerchief. The teenagers were able to see the face of the man as he walked around the cab to the driver's side and proceeded to wipe the exterior of the left door area. They watched as the man then walked around the front of the cab to the corner, stepped onto the sidewalk, and casually walked north on Cherry Street. The three witnesses would later provide this description of the suspect. White male adult, in his early 40s, 5 feet 8 inches tall, heavy build, reddish blonde crew-cut hair, wearing eyeglasses, dark brown trousers, dark navy blue or black parka jacket, and dark shoes. Yet the first police broadcast described the suspect as a Negro male adult. This mistake was later attributed to confusion during the phone call from the excited and frightened witnesses. This unbelievably simple error would forever haunt the San Francisco Police Department. Officer Armand Pelissetti was assigned to the Richmond station of the San Francisco Police Department. 26 years old at the time, Pelissetti and his partner, Officer Frank Peta, were out on patrol on the night of October 11th when they heard the first radio alert about the robbery of a cab driver in Presidio Heights. Within minutes, Pelissetti stopped the squad car behind the taxi at the northwest corner of Washington and Cherry Streets. The patrolman saw the three teenagers in front of the house on the southwest corner. The terrified teens frantically informed the officers that the suspect had escaped and pointed north up Cherry Street. I immediately went to the kids who were walking right towards the cab. I didn't have a clue if the guy was in it. And I told Frank, watch the cab. Don't let anybody touch it. I went over and I shooed the kids back and I told them stay there on the stairs. Pelissetti then turned to the cab and cautiously approached the driver's side of the vehicle with his flashlight in hand. As the beam illuminated the cab, his eyes focused on the window frame, where Pelissetti noticed a small smudge on the post between the front and rear doors. He moved closer and quickly concluded that the smudge was actually traces of blood, part of what appeared to be fingerprints. I see the bloody prints as I'm approaching the cab. I mean, it was totally visible. The officer then directed the flashlight beam through the open window. I was fully expecting to see some poor bastard in there, and sure as hell. The seemingly lifeless body of a man was lying in the front seat, his head and torso near the passenger side of the cab, with his feet near the steering wheel. So I looked in there, and I figured, oh my God, look at all this blood. This guy's dead in the door now. stepped away from the cab. And then I went right back over to the kids, got the information. Pelissetti was shocked to learn that the suspect was not a Negro male adult, but a white male adult. 30 seconds after I got there and I got that info from the kids, I hit that radio immediately, corrected the broadcast description. Preservation of the crime scene was standard procedure, and Pelissetti had unwavering faith in his partner's professionalism. 
And I'll tell you, he was a stonehead. He was a Marine. He would not have let God do that cab. Palisetti then headed north on Cherry Street to search for the killer. Then at that point, I uh, hightailed it down the street. The witnesses stated that the suspect had casually walked away from the scene. Pelissetti estimated that he was approximately 45 seconds to one minute behind the killer as he walked at a brisk pace and checked the bushes with his flashlight. The kids told me that uh, the Zodiac walked down. He walked away. He did not run. While Pelissetti followed in the path of the killer toward Jackson Street, a patrol car approached from the east. Officer Don Falk and his temporary partner, rookie officer Eric Zelms, responded to the call to search the area for a Negro male suspect. Falk slowed the vehicle as he came to the intersection of Jackson and Maple Street, approximately one block north and one block east of the crime scene. Falk studied the surroundings and quickly noted the presence of someone ahead and to his right. The man was walking east on Jackson Street and faced the oncoming patrol car. The individual I saw that night was a white male adult, approximately 35 to 45 years of age, 5 feet 10 inches tall, 180 to 210 pounds. Since we were looking for a Negro male adult, we proceeded on Jackson Street towards Arguello, continuing our search. Ahead, Officer Pelissetti neared the intersection of Cherry and Jackson Streets. Fout turned the steering wheel to his left directed the patrol car onto Cherry Street and stopped. As I was walking down the block, gun in hand, flashlight in the other hand, and scoping the bushes, and I remember getting my attention diverted to the left Bob's car, and there he is with Zelms in the car. Can't remember if we spoke at that time. According to Falk, Pelissetti approached the vehicle and asked, have you seen anybody? When Falk replied that he had seen a white man who did not match the description of the suspect, Pelissetti said, that's what we're looking for. Falk stated that the correct description was then broadcast over the police radio. As we arrived at Arguello Street, the description of the suspect was changed to a white male adult, believing that this suspect was possibly the one involved in the shooting We entered the Presidio of San Francisco and conducted a search on West Pacific Avenue, the opposite side of the wall, the last direction that we observed the suspect going. Did not find the suspect. Falk thought that the suspect may have traveled north on Maple and onto the Presidio grounds to the Julius Kahn playground. Falk stated that he then radioed back to headquarters and informed communications that a possible suspect had been seen going north on Maple Street, perhaps into the Presidio grounds. Officer Pelissetti agreed with Falk's theory about the killer's path. That was the direction the guy went. Logically, yeah, when I got to that corner, I had to make a decision. Do I jump into the park or do I make a right turn up the street? But if he got into the park, I, I figured, oh, shit, that'll be futile. There's just too many bushes, too many paths. Could have had a car over there, and there would be no chance of grabbing him. And then about three minutes after that, that park was loaded with motorcycles. Uh, five minutes after that, they had fire 
hydrants with the big spotlights. You know, so, I mean, the response was actually pretty good. Police officers poured into the neighborhood to join the manhunt. All available canine units also assisted officers in the search of the Presidio grounds. Back at the crime scene, Officer Peta greeted ambulance number 82 and directed the attendants to the body of the victim. The passenger door of the cab was opened, and ambulance steward Doucette examined the body. He quickly determined that the growing pool of blood originated from what appeared to be a gunshot wound on the right side of the victim's head. Doucette pronounced the man dead at 10.10 p.m. Officer Peta contacted headquarters and requested assistance from the coroner's office, the crime lab, and officials from the Yellow Cab Company. He also asked that a tow truck be sent to transport the cab to the police garage for further inspection. San Francisco Police Inspector Walter Crack had been on his way home when he heard the broadcast on his police radio, and he arrived shortly after Pelissetti's departure. Crack helped Peta and others preserve the crime scene as more personnel entered the area and curious neighbors gathered to watch the spectacle. Resident Bob Kendrick later described the scene in the neighborhood as nerve-wracking. Leroy Sweet, the assistant traffic manager at the Yellow Cab Company, responded to a request for information and identified the driver of cab number 912 as 29-year-old Paul Lee Stein. A student and husband, Stein joined the company two months earlier and drove a cab to support he and his wife as he worked toward a doctorate degree in English at San Francisco State College. Had he lived, Stein would have completed his postgraduate work in January. According to Sweet, Stein arrived at the yellow cab garage at approximately 8.45 p.m. that night when he reported for work and received his vehicle assignment. After leaving the garage, Stein picked up a passenger near Pier 64 and delivered the fare to the airport. As he returned to the heart of the city, Stein was then dispatched to 509th Avenue at 9.45 p.m. When Stein failed to appear at that address, another cab was dispatched to retrieve the waiting fare. Police quickly noted that the meter of the cab was still running and, at 10.46 p.m., read $6.25, an indication that Stein had picked up another fare while en route to his destination. Examination of the driver's trip sheet revealed that Stein had recorded the fare and noted the destination as Washington and Maple, but the cab had stopped one block further west at Cherry Street. There, the passenger apparently shot Paul Stein and walked away. One hour after Stein was pronounced dead, inspectors William Armstrong and David Toski arrived at the scene and assumed command of the robbery-homicide investigation. David Toski entered the history books that night and became the one investigator most often associated with the Zodiac case. Born on July 11, 1931, in San Francisco, Dave Toskey graduated from high school and then joined the Army. After a year serving in Korea, Toskey attended the San Francisco Police Academy and then joined the force in 1953. Working his way through the ranks, Toskey spent seven years as a patrolman, 
until he was eventually promoted to inspector in 1960 and was assigned to work in the Homicide Division. Partnered with Inspector William Armstrong, Toski was known for his colorful personality and trademark bow tie. Toski and Armstrong arrived at the crime scene that night, believing that they were investigating what appeared to be the rather simple case of the robbery and murder of a cab driver. After a briefing from the patrolman and others, the inspectors split up. Armstrong set out to gather information from witnesses, while Toski conducted a cursory examination of the cab. He noted that blood seemed to cover the interior. Searching Stein's pockets, Toski found $4.12 and a few other personal items. The inspector noted that Stein's wallet and the keys to the cab appeared to be missing. The coroner then authorized the removal of the body and instructed his deputy coroners, Schultz and Kindred, to accompany the body to the city morgue. As they pulled Paul Stein from the passenger side of the cab, his street guide spilled out and landed in a pool of blood that had collected in the curb below. Inspector Toski then noticed something metallic on the floorboard beneath the passenger seat, where he discovered a copper-coated 9mm shell casing. Below the dashboard, he also found a small pair of black leather gloves, damp with Stein's blood. A report prepared and distributed by the California Department of Justice stated that the gloves found in the cab were men's gloves, size 7. More blood marked the edge of the passenger seat, where Toski noted three red streaks that appeared to have been made by the fingers of a blood-soaked hand. Members of the San Francisco Police Crime Lab began work at 11.30 p.m. Bob Daggett's and Bill Kirkendall photographed the scene and collected impressions of the various fingerprints found in and on the cab, including the fingerprints seen by Pellicetti on the driver's side of the vehicle. Daggett's and Kirkendall collected the shell casing, the black gloves, and other physical evidence, and then returned to the lab. A tow truck pulled into the intersection and the driver prepared to remove the cab. The inspectors contacted headquarters to report developments and requested that the description of the suspect be broadcast throughout the following day. Despite the intense search of the surrounding neighborhood and nearby Presidio military grounds by police officers, army personnel, and even canine search units, the man who murdered Paul Stein had escaped into the darkness. At the city morgue, Stein's body was placed on an autopsy table. Pathologist John C. Lee examined the dead man and recorded his vital statistics for the final report. Stein was wearing underwear, shoes, socks, an undershirt, a white dress shirt with dark stripes, dark pants, and a matching jacket. The victim was covered in his own blood, and the obvious source was the gruesome hole on the right side of Stein's head. The bullet had entered between the temple and the right ear, then lodged inside the skull. The close proximity of the weapon as it discharged had created enough heat and pressure to burn the skin upon contact. Dr. Lee also noted what appeared to be an abrasion on the back of Stein's left hand, a possible defensive wound. The victim's clothing was removed to permit further inspection of the body. No one noticed or bothered to report 
that a large portion of Stein's shirt had been torn away and was missing. Dr. Lee's final report stated that the cause of death was a gunshot wound of the brain and revealed that Stein's blood alcohol level was 0.02%, an indication that the victim had consumed at least one alcoholic beverage before he began his shift. The last and perhaps most important document regarding Paul Stein seemed a rather brief and inadequate summary of a man's life. According to the report, Paul Lee Stein was born in Exeter, California on December 18, 1939, and lived at 1842 Fell Street in San Francisco. Stein weighed 180 pounds, stood at 5 feet 9 inches, and had brown hair and brown eyes. Next to the category of religion, Dr. Lee wrote, Protestant. Police informed Paul Stein's wife of the murder, and the news of her husband's death was a devastating blow for Claudia Stein. At her request, Paul's brother Joe traveled from Modesto to the San Francisco morgue to identify the body. Stein's friend, Michael Conway, accompanied Joe and was also asked to identify the victim. The murder was reported at the bottom of the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle's sister newspaper, the San Francisco Examiner, under the title, Robbery Victim, Cabby Slain in Presidio Heights. The article accurately stated that the witnesses had seen the suspect wipe down parts of the cab, but named the victim as T.L. Stein, and erroneously described the murder weapon as a 38 caliber revolver. The three young witnesses met with police artist Juan Morales and soon produced a composite sketch of the man they had seen exiting Stein's cab. Later, a second, slightly amended sketch was produced at the request of one of the eyewitnesses. Police released the drawing on Monday, October 13th, along with the description of the suspect and information regarding the crime. The suspect was described as a white male adult, 35 to 45 years old, 5 feet 8 inches tall, with reddish-brown hair and a crew cut, wearing heavy-rimmed glasses and a navy blue or black jacket. After police released the bulletin, the suspect issued his own press release. Postmarked October 13, 1969, The envelope featured two stamps depicting former President Franklin D. Roosevelt and had been addressed, San Francisco Chronicle, please rush to editor. The request for urgent delivery was repeated on the back of the envelope. The writer's wish was granted by dutiful postal workers and the envelope arrived at the offices of the San Francisco Chronicle on the following day. Carol Fisher, editor of the Letters Department, opened the envelope that morning. She quickly discovered a letter and what appeared to be a piece of clothing stained with blood. Fisher took the letter to her superiors, who then notified police. Inspectors Armstrong and Toski rushed to the Chronicle offices to collect the envelope and its contents. The two men anxiously studied the letter that would forever scar their careers and change their lives. Written in an almost childlike scrawl in blue ink, the letter began with a familiar greeting. This is the Zodiac speaking. 
I am the murderer of the taxi driver over by Washington Street and Maple Street last night. To prove this, here is a blood-stained piece of his shirt. I am the same man who did in the people in the North Bay area. The SF police could have caught me last night if they had searched the park properly, instead of holding road races with their motorcycles, seeing who could make the most noise. The car drivers should have just parked their cars and sat there quietly waiting for me to come out of cover. School children make nice targets. I think I shall wipe out a school bus some morning. Just shoot out the front tire and then pick off the kiddies as they come bouncing out. Once again, the letter ended with the crossed circle symbol. Armstrong and Toski were shocked by the letter and horrified by its implications. The two men had believed that Paul Stein died during a seemingly routine robbery, only to discover that he was the latest victim of a deranged killer who had already taken the lives of four people and now planned to assassinate children in the streets. The inspectors questioned members of the Chronicle staff in order to determine who had touched the letter. Editors agreed to delay publication while authorities determined whether the Zodiac was actually responsible for both the letter and Stein's death. Employees also agreed not to reveal the Zodiac's threat to ambush a school bus, at least until authorities decided how to respond to the danger without creating public hysteria. After collecting the evidence, Armstrong and Toski returned to the Hall of Justice and reported the stunning turn of events to Captain Martin Lee. Criminologist John Williams determined that the bloodstained cloth included in the envelope had indeed come from the shirt of Paul Stein. Lab tests later proved that the blood type matched the victim. A handwriting comparison left little doubt that the newest letter was the work of the Zodiac. Three other law enforcement agencies, as well as the FBI and the Department of Justice, had been hunting the deranged killer for almost a year to no avail. Captain Lee realized the magnitude of the situation and instructed the inspectors to contact the Solano County Sheriff's Office, the Vallejo Police Department, and the Napa County Sheriff's Office in order to learn more about the previous attacks and whatever evidence existed in those cases. Armstrong contacted the Vallejo Police Department and spoke with Detective John Lynch, who then forwarded a complete copy of the files regarding the investigation of the Vallejo case. Later that evening, Armstrong and Toski set out in the darkness for the 47-mile trip to Napa. At 11 p.m., the inspectors arrived at the Napa County Sheriff's Office and were greeted by Captain Donald Townsend, Sergeant Ken Narlow, and Special Agent Mel Nikolai of the California State Department of Justice. The meeting marked the beginning of a working relationship that lasted far longer than any of the investigators could have imagined. With years of experience between them, the men knew that they would have to cooperate if they hoped to catch the killer. Mel Nikolai was assigned by the Department of Justice to coordinate the investigation, and he was impressed by his fellow lawmen. Carlo and, and Armstrong were very good uh, from Napa. San Francisco PD and the hardware, our outfit, we all worked together. 
Nikolai briefed the inspectors on the previous shootings before Narlo shared information regarding the attack at Lake Berryessa. The group studied photographs of the crime scenes, discussed the killer's methods, and examined the case files. Narlo explained that a palm print was found on the telephone used by the Zodiac. Along with other fingerprints found on some of the letters, the palm print was of little value until a suspect was available for comparison. Armstrong revealed that fingerprints believed to belong to Paul Stein's killer had been recovered at the scene. Stein was killed with a 9mm weapon, but ballistic tests later proved that the weapon was not the same gun used to shoot previous Zodiac victims, Michael Mageau and Darlene Farron, in July. The investigators then turned their attention to the impending threat of the Zodiac's next attack on a school bus. Providing protection to buses all over the Bay Area was an almost impossible task and required the combined efforts of dozens of agencies as well as the assistance of school administrators and staff. The media withheld information, but investigators knew that the silence would not last and news of the Zodiac's terrifying plot would soon leak to the public. The Zodiac's threat was unprecedented and the fear he created would be as well. Armstrong and Toski returned to San Francisco with the weight of the world on their shoulders. As Paul Stein's name was recorded in the history books, his body was transported to the Daphne funeral home to be cremated. The remains of the young aspiring student and husband would be placed at the Cypress Lawn Cemetery in Colma, California. The next morning, the San Francisco Chronicle featured a story under the headline, Letter Claims Writer Killed Cabby, Four Others. As agreed, the newspaper did not reveal that the Zodiac had threatened to shoot schoolchildren. Bay Area residents were surprised to learn that the killer had moved south and departed from his previous pattern of attacking couples. The cold-blooded execution of a cab driver was an enigmatic addition to a crime spree that seemed to grow more bizarre at every turn. Thursday morning, authorities issued a confidential bulletin to schools that provided details of the possible dangers and instructions for drivers. In the event of an ambush, drivers were told not to stop the bus, but continue on with lights flashing and horn blowing in order to attract attention and help and to direct the children to lay on the floor of the bus. Bus drivers normally responsible for controlling unruly children, arbitrating minor arguments, and navigating traffic suddenly became the first line of defense against a madman. Armed men would ride along buses while patrol cars followed. Bus routes would be monitored by police vehicles on the ground and pilots in the air. These protective measures could not go unnoticed and authorities therefore decided to inform the public of the Zodiac's threat. By Friday, newspaper articles, radio broadcasts, and television news reports spread the word that a psychotic killer was lying in wait, rifle in hand, ready to strike at any time. Headlines such as, Zodiac Murderer Now Wants to Hit School Bus Kids, proved that every parent's worst nightmare had come true. San Francisco Police Captain Martin Lee did his best to reassure citizens in a press conference. Authorities in Napa also worked to alleviate fears. When reporters questioned the effectiveness of the security measures in place, 
One official stated that all reasonable precautions were taken given the vast number of buses operating at the time. Captain Martin Lee also told reporters that he was concerned that the Zodiac would strike again. He believed the killer was legally sane and knew the difference between right and wrong. This man is a psychopath with very, very seriously mentally deranged. He's a very, very sick and very dangerous person. Police also investigated the possibility that another cab driver may have met the Zodiac and lived to tell his story. Eleven days before Paul Stein was murdered, another yellow cab company driver sat inside his taxi in front of the Fairmont Hotel. At 11 p.m., a man walked up and climbed in the front seat of the taxi and directed the puzzled driver to Washington and Locust Streets, just blocks from the location where Stein was found in his cab. The driver recalled that the man's appearance indicated that he may have been a cook at the Mark Hopkins Hotel or one of the many hotels in the area. The curious driver then asked, Do you work at Mark Hopkins? And the man, apparently annoyed by the question, answered, Yeah. As the cab approached the requested destination, the man instructed the driver to follow Arguello Boulevard into the grounds of the Presidio military base. Shortly after the cab passed through the west gate, the passenger produced a gun and told the driver to stop. The man took more than $30 from the driver before he locked the victim inside the trunk of the cab, and, although he promised he would call the yellow cab company to send help, the stranger never did so and simply vanished. Sometime later, military police came upon the abandoned taxi, heard the shouting from inside the trunk, and freed the desperate driver. The description of the passenger did not match that of the Zodiac. According to the driver, the stranger was white, approximately 24 years old, 130 to 140 pounds, 5 feet 9 inches tall with black hair, wearing a blue denim jacket and dark pants. Another incident created more confusion about the possible identity of the Zodiac. Operators of police switchboards were accustomed to receiving telephone calls about the sensational case, but a call to the Oakland Police Department on October 22, 1969, was unusual. At 2 a.m., the Oakland dispatcher answered a call from a man who claimed to be the Zodiac. The caller wanted attorney F. Lee Bailey to appear on a local television talk show, but added that he was willing to settle for another noted lawyer, Melvin Belli. After stating that he would contact the television station by telephone, the caller hung up and left the bewildered dispatcher to carry out his instructions. F. Lee Bailey was a household name. The flamboyant and articulate attorney earned his fame by defending notorious characters such as Albert DeSalvo, the confessed Boston Strangler, and Dr. Sam Shepard, the accused wife killer who inspired the TV series and film The Fugitive. Based in Massachusetts, Bailey was unable to reach the West Coast in time for the 7 a.m. broadcast. Melvin Belli earned his nickname the King of Torts with a series of personal injury cases and consumer lawsuits in the 1940s and 50s, 
but he became a legal legend after defending infamous clients such as Jack Ruby, the killer of accused presidential assassin Lee Harvey Oswald, Carol Chessman, known as the Red Light Bandit, and Sirhan Sirhan, convicted killer of Robert Kennedy. There is never a deed so foul that something couldn't be said for the guy, Belli explained. That's why we have lawyers. The author of several books, Belli was a frequent guest on the TV talk show circuit, and he even appeared in an episode of the popular science fiction television series, Star Trek. An outspoken master of self-promotion, his egocentric antics earned him another nickname, Melvin Bellicose. His vocal criticism of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover became a crusade after the brazen barrister called the beloved G-Man a fascist. Many Americans viewed Belli's remarks as unpatriotic, but the infamous attorney had many fans, including himself. The opportunity to speak with California's most wanted killer on live television proved irresistible, and Belli quickly agreed to appear on the program. In one of the many FBI reports detailing Belli's activities, an agent reported the development to the Bureau and noted that the lawyer would, quote, do anything for publicity. In his memoir, My Life on Trial, Belli described the scene as he left his penthouse on Telegraph Hill and was escorted by police to the KGO television station where more officers armed with rifles stood guard. The Jim Dunbar show was named for its host, a well-known local media personality. The KGO TV show began early at 6.30 a.m. when Dunbar explained the situation to viewers and asked that they leave the telephone lines clear for the Zodiac's call. Forty minutes into the broadcast, the phone finally rang during a commercial break. The male voice on the line was quiet and distant, and the caller abruptly hung up. Dunbar, Belli, and viewers everywhere waited for the phone to ring again, and ten minutes later, the voice was back. The man threatened to kill unless he was connected with Belli. He stated that he needed help, and then the line went dead. Minutes later, the man called again. This time, he stated that he was the Zodiac. But when Melvin Belli asked for a name that did not sound so sinister, the caller offered the name, Sam. Once again, the man ended the call. When he called back, Sam explained that he was sick and suffered from painful headaches. Obviously aware that police would attempt to trace his call, Sam again hung up and repeatedly did so throughout the two-hour broadcast. Jim Dunbar assured Sam that his calls were not being traced, but behind the scenes, police were desperately working to trace the call to its place of origin. Sam revealed that he feared execution in the gas chamber. Belli promised to negotiate with the district attorney to ensure Sam's safety, but the caller remained suspicious. Still quiet and cautious, Sam seemed somewhat detached as he answered questions. Jim Dunbar asked whether or not Sam had called into the show before, during Melvin Belli's previous appearance on the program weeks earlier. Sam replied that he had tried to call, and Dunbar noted that the phones were tied up with other callers at the time. When asked why he wanted to communicate with Melvin Belli, Sam answered, I don't want to be hurt. 
Belli again offered his services, but the line quickly filled with the shrieking sound of a muffled scream. Sam explained, that was my headache. Another appeal by Belli was met with growing anxiety by Sam, who cried out, I'm going to kill those kids, as the Zodiac had threatened in his recent letter. After the broadcast, Belli and frustrated police were surrounded by a swarm of frenzied reporters. Belli stated that he did not know if the caller was actually the Zodiac, but he promised to help Sam if possible. A reporter raised the possibility that the telephone calls were made by more than one person as part of a hoax. Belli replied that he was certain he had spoken to only one individual. During his conversation with Sam on a private phone line, Belli suggested that they meet at a church in Chinatown. Sam reportedly asked Belli to meet him on top of the Fairmont Hotel and threatened to jump from the roof if the attorney did not come alone. Sam then changed the plan and asked to meet Belli at the Church of St. Peter and Paul on Mission Street at 10.30 a.m. Despite his promise to come alone, the attorney arrived at the location with dozens of police officers, reporters, and curious onlookers. Belli doubted that the caller would show up, but he said that he had no doubt Sam would try to call him again. Belli's statement proved prophetic. Sam had expressed his fear of the gas chamber, but Belli claimed the killer would escape execution in exchange for his surrender. Belli also claimed that he had already negotiated a deal with San Francisco District Attorney John J. Ferdin not to seek the death penalty if the Zodiac turned himself over to police. Belli's dramatic televised exchange with Sam was recorded and police requested that several key witnesses report to the KGO television studio to hear the caller's voice. Surviving victim Brian Hartnell, Vallejo Police Dispatcher Nancy Slover, and Napa Police Officer David Slate had all spoken with the Zodiac. They each listened to Sam's voice, and all concluded that he was an imposter. Brian recalled that the man he encountered at the lake seemed older and had a deeper voice. Officer Slate agreed and said that Sam was too young to be the man who called the Napa Police Department. Nancy Slover thought that Sam was, quote, too pitiful and pathetic to be the Zodiac. Even investigators found it difficult to believe that the childlike caller could be the same man responsible for the cold-blooded crimes of the Zodiac. Police were unable to trace Sam's calls, and despite the belief that he was not the killer, no one could be certain until he was located and cleared as a suspect. Efforts to find Sam continued while disappointed investigators resumed the search for the real Zodiac. As Melvin Belli predicted, the man called the attorney's home several times until police were finally able to trace the calls. Sam was actually a patient in a mental hospital, and investigators concluded that he was not the Zodiac. The relentless media coverage inspired mechanic Joe Stein to use the public attention to help catch the killer. Baffled by the senseless murder of his brother Paul, Joe Stein now dared the madman to come after him. Joe told reporters that he wanted to take action before another victim was killed and hoped that making himself a target would draw the killer out of hiding. The San Francisco Chronicle headline read, A Target for Zodiac dare by brother of slain man. 
In a bold and perhaps reckless move, Joe told the Zodiac exactly when and how to find him by identifying his place of work at the Richfield Service Station at 706 Sutter Street in Modesto. Joe described his daily routine and stated that he was tough enough to handle the Zodiac. Fortunately, the Zodiac did not accept Joe Stein's invitation. Weeks had passed since the last message or murder by the Zodiac, yet the fear he created increased in his absence. Parents already afraid to put their children on a school bus opened the morning newspaper and discovered that even the traditional Halloween holiday was no longer safe. The newspaper headline read, No Trick or Treat, Parents Asked to Keep Kids at Home. Vallejo Police Chief Jack Stiltz requested that parents keep children indoors and voiced concerns that the Zodiac would exploit the chaos of Halloween night by wearing a disguise while searching for more victims. The chief also feared that the Zodiac could attack a group of trick-or-treaters if they came to his front door. The children of Northern California could never forget the phantom responsible for turning their trip to school into a nightmare and making Halloween a true terror. For law enforcement officials, the Zodiac not only posed an unprecedented threat, but also served as a source of tremendous frustration and embarrassment. The failure to catch the boastful slayer who bragged about eluding his pursuers made the search for the Zodiac a top priority at the highest levels, including J. Edgar Hoover, the notorious director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, as Vallejo Police Sergeant John Lynch once noted. The FBI was deeply involved in this. Nothing would have pleased John Edgar Hoover any more than to have the FBI solve that case. The Zodiac first appeared in the Bay Area in December 1968 when he shot and killed two teenagers at a dark and isolated lover's lane spot. Then, the killer struck again and shot a young couple at a public park, followed by a taunting telephone call to police, and sent threatening letters to local newspapers along with a coded message which described the joy of killing. Then came the daylight stabbing of a young couple at a lake recreation area dozens of miles away, followed by another telephone call to police. The murder of cab driver Paul Stein clearly demonstrated the lack of a discernible pattern in the Zodiac crimes, but threats to attack a school bus and shoot children in the streets left citizens and law enforcement wondering how the killer could escalate his campaign of terror. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover wanted the killer arrested, but the Zodiac had other plans. In his next message, the Zodiac once again changed his methods and announced that he would now play a very different kind of game. Zodiac A to Z Written and produced by Michael Butterfield Zodiac Voice by John Knight Zodiac A to Z Produced for ZodiacKillerFacts.com Zodiac Killer Facts.com